Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. It's been a tough week for the world of tech with job losses at both Twitter and Stripe. We'll take a closer look at what this means for the industry. I'll take you inside Web Summit in Lisbon to hear how Amazon's AWS is supporting startups. And I'll ask that important question, is the era of the influencer over? As always, you can email the show to as always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I had the show done on Thursday. It had bells, whistles and a bit of crack from Web Summit. But then on Thursday evening, as I landed back into Ireland from Lisbon, uh, it was confirmed that around 3,700 people were going to lose their jobs at Twitter. This was just one day after 1,100 people working at Stripe were let go. Firstly, our thoughts are with the staff impacted by those job cuts. I think it's known and accepted that we're going through some economic turbulence at the moment. But I just wanted to draw your attention to the ways in which the job cuts were communicated at the two firms and the juxtaposition in terms of tone and empathy. Elaine Burke of Silicon Republic is with me now. Um, uh, Elaine, obviously an incredibly tough week for those impacted were we expecting job cuts to come so early on in Elon Musk's takeover of the company? Um, I mean, it's only a week since the takeover and in early this week, we were already hearing rumours of these cuts. So I suppose it's expected, but it's still been expected in a very, very brief time frame since the takeover. Everything seems to be happening quite fast and chaotically, which seems to be the stamp that Elon's making on Twitter at the moment. Mm. I um I mentioned it on the Pat Kenny show earlier in the week, but the difference between the communication from Stripe uh, and Twitter in relation to letting people go is pretty stark. What did you make of the communication that was sent internally to the Twitter staff versus what was sent internally to Stripe? Because look, it's not nice being told that you're losing your job regardless of how well it's managed or whatever, but there is a big disparity, right? Yeah, I mean, it, in the bare bones of it, everyone's kind of been informed that they've lost a job over email, if, you, if you're looking at it in brass tacks there. But the approach and the tone and the care being uh, brought to the table is very, very different. In the context of Stripe, uh, an email from Patrick Carlson himself, signed off by Patrick Carlson and then published online on Stripe's newsroom, detailed what was going to happen and said that people were going to get an email if they were going to be impacted by the job cuts and they affected over a thousand people. And then, so they gave them information on what that would mean. And some people wouldn't be like losing their jobs immediately. Some people kept on. Everyone was going to still get their annual bonus. Um, there was lots of attention paid to and answering questions that people would likely have immediately. And I'm sure that gave people a lot of assurances. It's awful to have lost your job. But if it's going to go down, that's that's a nicer way for it to go down for you to be given support and information from the word go. Whereas in the case of the Twitter employees, within a week of uh, Elon coming into the position of power he's in now, apparently what we're hearing from reports from internal uh, leaks and stuff like that, all hands meeting ha- meetings have been scheduled and then cancelled at the last minute. So apparently the only communication that the Twitter staff are really getting from Elon Musk is through his tweets and leaks to the media. Like they're not, they don't seem to be getting a lot of top-down communication, and a, a huge amount of the top-level staff have left or were fired as well. So people that they would have turned to 
in a time like this are probably not around at the moment either. So I'm sure it's been really, really stressful for them to then find out today they can't even go to the office. They were told that they were going to be locked out of offices today. If they were in an office, they should go home. If they were on the way to an office, they should turn back and their key cards weren't going to work. And some people who are saying that they've lost their jobs are saying that based on being locked out of corporate accounts. And this is all still based on assumptions. They could just be locked out of those accounts What? because everything is locked down while these emails are due to be sent out. And according to the memo that leaked, those emails aren't out yet. So we don't even know what's going to be detailed for them. Are they going to get an explanation of what their severance is going to be or what this? if there's going to be a timeline for these losses? I, I, and the way it was communicated, even in the memo, it wasn't signed by anybody. It was signed from Twitter, which is just quite cowardly, really. Like if you are going to be initiating layoffs as a leader, you really need to bite the bullet and take that stand and make sure that your name is to it. Yeah, absolutely. You alluded to it there, but aside from and not just the staff who've been let go, but if you're a staff member at Twitter in general, the last few weeks and indeed months, I'm sure have been very stressful because there's been so much speculation, so much talk. Is there a sense of Elon Musk just not taking this seriously and not realising that there's human beings making and running the company that he's now bought? You could definitely get that sense from um, this o- this other kind of uh, sense of his leadership that's been coming through in the past week where he's been apparently demanding that people work day and night um, to make the changes that he wants to make now from a completely different roadmap from what they were all working towards and uh, apparently expecting people to sleep in the office if they have to as if they're you know a cozy little startup trying to work towards a sprint uh, run that's going to make or break them and, and that's not really what this company is at this stage um he he's certainly rocking the boat I'm sure and he's kind of shown his cards as a leader who doesn't really seem to care about employees even a lot of um Lawyers out of the US are starting to try and advise Twitter employees on what their labor rights would be. But they have also been saying things like it doesn't look like Elon Musk really respects labor law um, and they might not get um, their contracts honored in terms of what they should be expecting here. It's incredible just to see someone show such disregard, I suppose, for legislation as well as human beings. Um, there's obviously a lot of concern now about the wider tech industry obviously the jobs that were lost this week were not the first jobs to go from the tech sector this year are we expecting further uh cuts and is there any indication as to how severe it could be if so yeah i mean to be totally honest there hasn't been a week that's gone by where there hasn't been some kind of tech loss in in terms of jobs um in the sector uh probably since the start of october maybe earlier than that um and you'd know this yourself and I don't expect that to slow down. Um, some companies have even added to cuts that they've already made, Lyft being one of those very recently. Now, that would have heavily affected uh, employees in the US. We hear mostly about the companies that are based here. Um, and, and the likes of like Meta and Google have also said that they're doing hiring freezes. Um, and Amazon, I think, is doing a corporate level hiring freeze as well. So you're looking at either a, a kind of a freeze on recruitment in those teams and possible job losses as well, or maybe one or either of those. And it's essentially, I mean, it's it's the case of where we are at now in terms of business. It's um, people looking at the economic forecasts and starting to hedge their bets. And also, and you'll have seen this from Patrick Carlson's email as well, he admitted that the company overhired mm-hmm. for the economy that they were in. And Shopify CEO said the same thing when they let go of a, a, a large number of people earlier this year as well. 
Uh, that definitely is a common refrain. And if you looked at the kind of hiring that was happening in the last two years, you, you can see where they're coming from there. There was massive numbers of jobs announced at these companies. They have scaled rapidly. And there is a sense of maybe they got too far too fast or were racing too far ahead without really considering some um, real life uh, things that could shift and change and, and make those jobs more unstable. And one of the consequences of of this uncertainty is um, Ireland is obviously a tech hub or the home of a lot of tech companies uh, in Europe. We have a lot of people working in the tech industry here right across the country. That could have wider implications beyond just jobs. It could impact, you know, cost of living. It could impact housing. It could impact so much in the Irish society as a whole. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the the tech companies that have moved in here have really shaped, uh, specifically Dublin, kind of shaped a lot of uh, things here. So there's people who say um, there's been a bit of an impact in terms of like people who are getting great salaries and development work at um, big tech companies has influenced the price of renting and stuff in the areas that are close to those uh, companies. So say in like uh, near the Silicon Docks, as they're called, um, and kind of pricing people who do other work out of the market there and the reason why that looks like a very clear cut comparison to make is because that's kind of what happened in San Francisco practically everyone who wasn't working in tech got priced out of living in San Francisco it became unwieldingly expensive unless you're on a 100k a year job with a tech company um but I would say like for the people who are in the tech world and like this these cuts being made at Twitter in particular are so massive if you're talking if he gets rid of 50 percent of the workforce that's a lot of people going to be out of work and it could be people who are in those um, high skill and also high demand sectors such as coding and cybersecurity and things like that and there are people who've said today that they think they've lost their jobs at Twitter that are in those areas there's a lot of hiring activity going on in those areas it might not be in uh, the big tech companies who are hedging and move, pulling back on recruitment but there's everyone's moving into hiring AI and data engineers and uh, cybersecurity specialists and things like that so for people who are in those high demand areas their job security, I'd imagine, won't be as tenuous as people who are in a lot of the support areas and the admin and all of the um, kind of HR staff. A lot of HR staff are, are, are getting cuts here. Um, they're the ones who are probably going to suffer the most, I think. Yeah, well, look, as we said, it's a very tough week for those working in the tech industry. And our thoughts are with the staff. If we can do anything at all, please do reach out. Um, it is a worrying trend. And we will, of course, bring you updates as they happen here on News Talk. Uh, Elaine, thank you so much for joining us here on Tech Talk. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, that was Elaine Burke of Silicon Republic. Now, to change gear entirely, when we come back here on News Talk, I'll take you inside Web Summit 2022. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, before the break, we were talking about the job cuts at Twitter and Stripe. But before those job cuts were announced, the activity at Twitter was the big talking point at Web Summit, which took place this week in Lisbon. I was there for a few days and I caught up with Charlie Taylor, the technology and innovation editor at the Business Post. And I asked him if the takeover and Elon's reign at Twitter was going as we had expected. 
That's a good question, and I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, it's kind of funny because Tech Summit this year, you know, it's all, it's always about who's going to be speaking, who's, who's got something to say. But this year, it's all about someone who's not here, which is Elon Musk, whether you're in the audience, talk, you know, if you're chatting to people just when you get in lunch, or if you're interviewing people or watching people on the main stage, everyone is talking about Elon Musk. And it's along the lines of what the hell is he doing and what is he going to do, you know? And no one obviously knows, you know, which is kind of a key thing here. I, I guess one of the things is, like every, everyone is intrigued by it and fascinated and, and also in some cases scared you know you get a lot of people kind of saying oh I don't know if I want my blue tick or you know or I worry about the future of Twitter should I leave it now should I be gone I mean you're probably hearing that in terms of advertisers you know the suggestions that advertisers might pull away from Twitter there's fears of like you know right wing extremists are going to get more of a platform on Twitter and you know I mean I suppose everything we're seeing so far seems to suggest there is major upheaval going on and that the Twitter we know now is going to change beyond recognition fairly soon. Yeah, there was a lot of talk earlier in the week about the blue tick and this I think was perceived by some people to see something as seen as something frivolous but this will have wide-reaching implications this is something that could impact news politics and beyond yeah I saw some research the other day which was really intriguing and, and obviously I retweeted it on Twitter um, but it was about how people with blue ticks come come across as more authoritative because obviously a lot of them have been through a, a process where it's like they are just you know defined as being journalists or people of of interest you know in the media etc but also not only you know more authoritative but also that the tweets they sent they tended to tweet were more considered you know and tended to be more you know I suppose less biased than you might get generally as generally might be the case and also I suppose that they would be retweeted more so I mean there's something about that being spread rather than I suppose the lies that often spreads like a virus on Twitter but my my sense is that you know I mean there's very danger you know there's a very dangerous path lined up I think if you do take away blue ticks or just give them out generally yeah uh, there's also been a number of people tweeting about leaving twitter which is always very enjoyable do we know where they're going to move to and if we are expecting that mass migration from one platform to another? Mastodon seems to be the big one that people are talking about because it's a decentralised platform so you don't have anyone kind of controlling it in the same way so that's kind of being touted. To be honest I think for the majority of people they will stay on Twitter mm-hmm. unless it really becomes like just completely unbearable I think people despite the criticism will probably want to stay there people love it so I think you know those that are on it will want to stay regardless of what happens next yeah I think it's worth reminding people as well that you know there are regulations in place and although the company it it is now Elon Musk's company and that's fine and dandy he still does have to play ball to a certain extent and there are you know laws and rules that he does have to adhere to whether he does or not is something different but anyway yeah I just want to say with that because I mean you know there was you know he tweeted that the bird is free and there was immediately I can't remember who it was but one of the European ministers that you know hit back back. yeah we've sort of like the bird will operate under our rules it was like oh that's a serious burn there you know yeah but that's the way it should be like he needs to realize that there are rules whether he plays by them or not is one thing but anyway uh, let's talk a little bit about web summit Uh, so we've been here for the last number of days been a lot of walking and a lot of talking uh what has been your assessment of the 2022 event yeah i mean as you say lots of walking lots of talking lots of cues i mean i was just at a press conference there where the chief executive paddy cosgrave was saying he worried about the future of it in lisbon just for the fact that you know i mean there's it's at maximum capacity you can see that there's big queues whether you want to go to the toilet get a coffee what you know even to enter the premises is hard work you know so i mean it is kind of like you can feel that sort of it's at capacity sort of feeling 
But I think, you know, beyond that, I mean, what's, you know, the main topic to conversation, there's lots of questions being asked, as there always are at tech events like this. People are like, we will, we, you know, we will discuss what the metaverse is and what it will be when in, in 10 years time. There's lots of those sort of big blue sky kind of questions being asked, but very little in terms of answers. I mean, yeah. there's all sort of things. There's the metaverse, there's Elon Musk and what he's going to do. There's what's happening with tech stocks and layoffs and all of that. A lot of these questions are being asked, but it doesn't seem as though too many people have the answers at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, later in the show, we are going to hear uh, about one of those blue sky topics, which is the future of influencer marketing. Uh, We're going to talk to influencers who are making thousands of dollars a month on different platforms, but also the surge in ethical influencing. Uh, so that is coming up later in the show. But Charlie, I, I don't know if I've missed something this week in terms of the big wow moment. Obviously, we had the First Lady of Ukraine at the opening uh, ceremony. She delivered a very passionate um, speech. Just in the last few minutes as we're talking here, uh, you reported that Paddy Cosgrave has actually attended a dinner with two journalists who were disinvited from the event uh, because of the spreading of uh, pro-Russian propaganda. Do you think that this uh, will dominate the coverage and the tone and I suppose the attitudes towards Web Summit overshadowing the work of the thousands of people who work for the company because of the actions of the CEO? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of, you know, we just published a story about an hour or two ago, and there's been quite a lot of reaction to it. And a lot of people kind of going, what is going on? You know, is Paddy Cosgrave kind of playing both sides almost? You know, he's inviting the, the First Lady of Ukraine to come and give a really passionate speech about using technology to save people, not to, you know, to save lives, not to end them. You know, and it was, you know, you know, stand innovation, as you might expect, you know, and everyone really kind of won over by that. And then at the same time, you, you've got Web Summit sort of inviting the Grey's Zone, which is a far left uh, news news site that has been criticized for taking a sort of pro Kremlin editorial line you know so you've got them that have been kind of you know invited and then disinvited after the backlash but then it emerges that you know they were they were out at a, at a web summit hosted dinner which you know very much in public this was not sort of hiding down some side lane you know and there's very sort of like there's a signaling going on there of like you know I'm sort of we disinvited them but I'm still keen to hear what they say you know and of course there's the argument of you know free speech and you know everyone should be heard no matter what they have to say there's that argument kind of being put forward but there is I think I think you know that's going to dominate a lot of what's going on here because people are like you know, is, is is Web Summit sort of pro-Ukraine? Is it not? You know, I think those things, are, 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 they run the risk of getting in the way of what Web Summit's about. Do you think it was as successful as the events that were running in person pre-pandemic? I don't. I mean, my feeling is it feels a bit sort of uh, a going through the motions uh, event this year. I mean, you know, and, and maybe that's to be expected. You know, this is the first full one since uh, COVID restrictions were withdrawn. Last year there was one, but that was capped at 40,000 people. We're back at over 70,000 this year. So there's bound to be some sort of issues, I suppose, in going through the motions. But you see it with the keynote speakers. There's a lot of people who have spoken here before who are back. And, you know, I don't think it has had that wow in terms of speakers that have been here. I think generally it, it, it kind of feels a bit tired. Do you know what I mean? I, th- I heard lots of people talking about Sloss, which is an alternative uh, event that happens in Helsinki, I think, in the first week in December. And there's a lot of buzz about that. And I just wonder if kind of, you know, there's a sense of like Web Summit perhaps peaking, maybe just in Lisbon or maybe as a whole, peaking and like people are looking elsewhere to kind of go, where can I get that feeling of that, that I used to get from Web Summit? That was Charlie Taylor, the tech and innovation editor at the Business Post, speaking to me 
at Web Summit in Lisbon. Elsewhere at the tech event, I caught up with Kellen O'Connor, the general manager for Amazon's AWS startup business in EMEA. He told me what his team is doing to support startups in the region. So the AWS startup team, uh, it's a unique team. We're composed of you know former founders, former investors, former startup operators, people who really understand the journey that startups go on. And that's because our mission is to help one, democratize access to you know, technology from the AWS cloud, which is leading in the industry, and make that available to entrepreneurs at the earliest stages in their dorm room, in their garage, and then to help them on their journey to build the next unicorn companies which go global. Uh, and I think we're pretty proud that along that journey, um, a lot of the, the big names out there today, companies have been really successful, we've been able to play a part in that journey. So, you know, companies like Deliveroo and Monzo and Babylon Health, which are really revolutionizing their industries, uh, have been able to build those innovative products um, with the support of the AWS startup team. Uh, and, and some of the ways we do that, we have technical architects that get hands-on, you know, one-to-one, helping identify the right services and troubleshooting to build technology solutions. We've also got a large business development and partner team who's working to grow the top-line revenue of those companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example actually here from Ireland is a company called Teens, um, which make a low-code, no-code automation platform for security and DevOps teams. And they've listed that product on the AWS software marketplace where we're helping them to sell that to enterprises. And and they've got customers like Coinbase and Canva who are buying from them. Um, So a global audience for this Irish startup. And that's being aided by these partnership programs that we offer at AWS. How early on in the journey do uh, startups get in touch with you and how root and branch Mm. is your uh, help and your facilitation to get them to the next stage? Ideally, before they've even started building something. (laughs) So it really starts as early as possible. And part of the reason for that is we've in working with startups for so many years. Startups were some of the first customers of AWS. When we launched in 2006, they were probably the only customers using us right out of the gate. And and we learned and heard from customers that those first year, the getting started part, that's actually one of the hardest parts for a startup. And so we felt that we could really make a material difference there. Two ways that we do that. Um, One is we built a credits program called AWS Activate, where Uh, To give you an idea of the scale, in the last two years alone, we've given out over $2 billion in credits for startups to use our infrastructure at no cost, particularly in those early stages when money is tight, you know, you know, it might be the difference between doing a new tech tech solution or hiring another engineer, and we can make that decision making easier for you. Um, so that's accelerated a lot of companies' success, and you know, companies like Stripe started out their journey long ago on AWS Activate. Another thing we're doing, which is very focused on the company formation and early stage, is one year ago at Web Summit we launched an accelerator called the Startup Loft Accelerator. Um, and it's it's kind of a unique offering in that most accelerators ask for equity. They want a piece of your company to participate. Ours is equity free. Because again, we're really trying to support entrepreneurs and do everything we can to make them successful. 
um, without you know asking for a piece of the company. And we've now had over 270 companies participate in the Startup Loft Accelerator in just one year. Uh, and it mixes business and technical content and also getting ready for funding, which is another key piece that companies really early on want. What's that first seed check? Where's my first angel? Uh, and we've had over 100 venture capital firms and partners participating with those 270 companies to see, you know, hey, should I fund this company? And that's incredible exposure that can be the difference between success and failure when you're that early on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that your team is made up of uh, entrepreneurs, of people with entrepreneurial brains. Mm. Between that experience and then the time with AWS, have you seen certain trends in the challenges that entrepreneurs are now facing or startups are now facing? Because we don't Mm. need to list all the changes that have happened in the world in the last few years. I'm assuming that there are new challenges today that may not have been there back when AWS first started. Yeah, as you said, we've been through quite a few years recently. And so, you know, without diving deep into it, I think whilst there's been challenges, you know, the move to virtual, the lockdowns of the pandemic, um, those were really hard. And I think we all went through them together uh, and had to learn as we go. It's also created a lot of opportunity. And so sometimes the challenge is that where the opportunities are is shifting. And so as an entrepreneur, you have to be really in tune with what are the latest trends, where are the, the new niches being built, where has another startup already kind of successfully entered this market and I have to go somewhere different. And so some of the things we see happening increasingly now is, you know, healthcare um, is getting much more sophisticated in terms of the new solutions that people are able to, to build that are gonna literally save lives and, and push forward the state of medicine. One, one company that's uh, really exciting, they're actually based in the UK, is called Axial 3D. And what they do is they make 3D models of patients who are gonna have a surgery that the doctor, the surgeon, can then see to build their operating plan around before they actually open someone up and, and operate on them. And what's really interesting is 50% of surgeons change their operating plan after they see the 3D model, which, yeah, I think I would want my surgeon to be making the most informed decision possible. And so and Axial is only able to do that because they're leveraging machine learning technology and really advanced computing resources from AWS to build these sophisticated models. Um, so that's a good example of that just wouldn't have been possible a couple years ago. And so for entrepreneurs knowing where the technology has suddenly made something possible that wasn't before and there's a new opportunity created is, is part of the complexity along with, you know, surviving some of these headwinds that we've all had to experience. Mm. I'm sure a lot of people are sitting at home now with, you know, a post-it note on the table. They have their billion dollar idea just sitting yeah. there, but they don't know where to begin. It can be quite overwhelming, particularly when there's so much fluctuation going on in the world with other yeah. events that we can't control. Would you have any advice to that person looking at the post-it note with the vision that just needs, I suppose, the push to, to, to get it off the ground? Yeah, a few. One is be bold. Go for it. Uh, I think there's a lot out there in the news right now about that it's a tough economic climate. Um, on the other hand, startups raised $16 billion in funding in the third quarter of this year. And while that was down a bit from the record highs in 2021, that's still a phenomenal amount of money that's available out there for the right ideas. Um, Second thing I would say is you really have to focus on the customer experience. 
And so if you really find customers who have a problem that you can solve and you maniacally focus on it, it's something that I think has, we've a philosophy we had at Amazon and has worked very well for us. There will always be a place for new businesses to be formed around that. And your customers will actually help you build your product because they'll tell you very quickly what they like about it and what they don't. Um, so finding those broken experiences, you know, an example of this is Monzo. Uh, Digital Challenger Bank, based in the UK, they have about 5 million customers. You know, they felt like the the normal banking experience is broken. It's hard. You get to go to this branch and like they're never open when you're off work and then takes forever to get a card and you can't get a statement. They said there has to be a better way. Um, And on the back of that insight, they built a phenomenal brand. You know, as I said, 5 million customers. and, uh, And they did that very rapidly in partnership with AWS, you know, and they run over 1600 microservices, kind of small pieces of technology that add up to their bigger solution on AWS. And they're a fully regulated bank in the cloud, which is also, I think, a testament to the security that you can have in the cloud. And one of our core value prop is that the security that we've built at AWS to satisfy big banks, governments, you know, the most security sensitive organizations in the world can be available to you as a startup just starting out and help you break into, you know, a really established industry like banking. My final question is, uh, and you alluded to it there, the uncertainty and there's a lot of talk, I suppose, about the tech industry. Mm. Um, Firms that had never let people go are now restructuring or downsizing, which is obviously very sad to see. But are you optimistic when you look at what's coming from the startup stage uh, in terms of innovation and ambition to ensure that the tech industry continues to grow and continues to innovate in particular? Well, I am an optimist by heart, so you played right into my hand on that one, I think. The answer is yes. Um, And I say that while acknowledging, as you just did, that it is tough times and, you know, growth plans that companies around the world, both startups and established ones, may have written back at the beginning of this year, those need to be modified now. Um, You have to be aware of the reality. We're working really closely with startups to help them on that. So... We're helping them to optimize their costs and their spend in the cloud so that they can have greater runway, essentially cash in the bank. How can we make it last longer? Um, And we work really closely with them on that. Uh, But at the same time, uh, there's some great companies being formed. I think we should all remember that the 2008 financial crisis, which was a, a horrible time for many businesses, also gave birth to a number of really incredible companies. So companies like Stripe, uh, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, Deliveroo, the whole sharing economy and gig economy was really born around that time. It's become a huge industry. And we saw how important uh, companies like Deliveroo were during the pandemic and the lockdowns, not just for people to get food in their homes, but for small businesses and restaurants to be able to stay afloat during that time. It was really a great service to society. So I think we're going to see another wave of innovation born out of the hard times and challenges. And I get very excited about, you know, we talked about healthcare earlier. I think sustainability is another one which is really near and dear to my heart. And we're seeing some incredible companies being formed right now around this. Uh, one, you know, this is uh, in, where I live in Sweden uh, is Northfold. 
um, which is a company who's making, they make lithium batteries, which are essential for the electrification and decarbonization of the automotive industry. And Northvolt's building the biggest battery factory in Europe, in the north of Sweden right now. Uh, and it's a really high-tech factory, all enabled with you know analytics and monitoring for their processes built in AWS. So we're happy, I think, to be playing a small part in that mission to save our planet, which I think is is a really important one and something that will come out of the current times we're in. That was Kellen O'Connor of AWS speaking to me earlier this week at Web Summit in Lisbon. Now, I mentioned it earlier on in the show, but when we come back, we're going to ask, is the era of the influencer over? Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Now, here's a question for you. Have you ever bought something that was recommended or endorsed by an influencer on social media? The industry of influencer marketing is said to be around $16 billion this year. But have we all reached SpawnCon fatigue? Well, I caught up with Upton Sadi at Web Summit to talk about his career as a content creator and what's next for the world of influencers. I have always, always had a passion for storytelling. And I think that... I am doing videos now because that's where the world is. The world is, let's tell stories through short form video. And if we were still writing blogs, I would still be writing my blog back in 2010, you know, but we've evolved and I've evolved with it. So for me, it's all about two, two, two things, two values that guide me. Number one is telling stories that I find interesting to, to an audience. And number two is as an American who moved abroad in 2016, I realized what a bubble I was in how I assumed that everyone you know, was in love with the US or wanted to move to the US and all these things. And realizing, wow, there's a lot of booming economies. There's a lot of really exciting companies coming out of Singapore or Europe. Um, a lot of interesting stories you know, and, and humans that I wanted to connect with around the world that are not in the US. So I think on a deeper level, what is driving my storytelling is thinking about my audience, which is primarily US. It's very global, but number one on all platforms is, is US. And so thinking like, how can I change perceptions of Americans and also open up perspectives. And I don't mean in a social way, like I, I respect people who, who do that kind of content, but as you know, my videos are about tech and economics. So I'm talking about like going to Lebanon and reporting on the economic crisis, right? 90% inflation in their currency. Hundreds of outlets are regularly reporting on the currency fluctuating and why it's happened through text and through live television. But who's really doing it in social media on TikTok? And who's doing it in a way that actually gives voice to the Lebanese? And that's what I've prided myself in doing over the past two years. Going to Lebanon, doing a documentary about the crisis, interviewing people, cutting it up for TikTok, and cutting it up for YouTube as well. And you know, it makes me feel grateful and humbled that that content has over 10 million views. And even when you search like Lebanon economic crisis, you see Sky News, you see I think Al Jazeera, you see Vice and then you see my video and, and mine actually outperform. Usually it doesn't, of course, but just to know that me as a single individual can tell a story and, and have the same reach and sometimes greater reach than the biggest media outlets in the world is very exciting. I was a full-time reporter for CNBC in New York, in Hong Kong and in Singapore. I launched their YouTube channel. So I got to, and, and to be honest with you, this is how, this is one of the reasons why I started. Why? Because in 2016, me and a team of nine of us launched the YouTube channel for CNBC International. And over four years, we grew the channel across Facebook, Snapchat, YouTube to about two million followers. In those same four years, I was seeing the likes of video creators like Nas Daily and Drew Binsky, who have now become friends of mine, get 10, 20, 30 million followers with their 
camera traveling the world, right? Not news networks, no funding, no, you know, logo like I had with CNBC, right? Like, this is a very recognizable logo. It's the CNBC logo. And yet these individuals by themselves as one-man bands were growing faster than us. And that's when I realized there's more power in an individual right now than in a big news network. I want to talk a little bit about monetization and the, the influencer sphere because there are content creators who make money from advertisers who wouldn't necessarily class themselves as influencers as such. Are the lines blurring as to what is an influencer and what is not an influencer? Absolutely. I think, I think there was a major shift with the pandemic. Before the pandemic, a lot of content was aspirational. You know, Instagram, sitting in the Maldives, uh, going on a hot air balloon, 6 a.m. breakfast, you know, in your hotel pool. And then because two things happened. One is pandemic happened, so it took us all by storm. We, we got very scared at what the future is going to look like. We all were vulnerable, anxious, a lot of issues. And then number two is TikTok happened. And TikTok was, was like, you know what, we're going to do... Because I think for the longest time, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram was, was hoping that we would turn our phones. That, you know, to watch videos, just turn your phone and enjoy the content. And then TikTok finally is like, no one's going to do that. Let's deliver content that's vertical first and vertical only. And, and along with that came this opportunity to, to really be authentic. Whereas on Instagram, you were seeing people show their best lives. On TikTok, you're seeing show, people show their truth and their vulnerabilities. Not always, but that's, but that's in general what I see and that's what I feel. People are sitting on their couch, lying in bed, sitting in their car crying because they just got laid off, right? You never ever saw something like that on Instagram before. So I think when you, you know, going back to your question about influencers, I think along with that change, we also saw uh, kind of skepticism with the word influencer because it's like, you know, are you authentically using that product and liking that product or are you just trying to be rich and famous? And now with content creators, you know, I don't consider myself an influencer. I do consider myself a content creator just because that's what the industry term that came up with as somebody who creates content. I work with brands. Uh, I work with brands on TikTok, YouTube, across my platforms. And, you know, I'm happy to talk more about that. Is there a disparity between what you earn and how much do algorithms change how much you earn? Does it impact you on a, on a, on a notable scale, I suppose? Yes. This year on Facebook, my Facebook page has made anywhere from $10,000 a month to $135,000 in one month. So both of those are extremes, right? But, but it just goes to show volatility that can come from all platforms. TikTok is very interesting. I did 50 million views on TikTok last month. And I think, and I'm happy to show you right now. So my, my TikTok page had exactly 50 million views last month. And I think the payout is going to be about $700, which is like, yeah, right? I mean, it's nothing. It's, n it's no way to live, right? So this is what I've made in the past two years on TikTok, which is, uh, you know, $11,000. And that's probably about half a billion views. So on average, you're looking at about 300 to 400 bucks a month from TikTok. So TikTok is really, it's good for organic reach. It's amazing. And I'm grateful that I can monetize TikTok. Most countries are not monetized. I don't know if you know this, but I think it's only US 
UK and Germany or something that you can actually make money from TikTok. I have friends with 10 times more followers on TikTok than me. They live in Canada or Singapore. They don't make a dollar. So, but how are they making money? They're doing brand deals. They're doing a lot more brand deals probably than I am. Um, so yeah, there is a lot of volatility. There's a lot more fragmentation than we've ever seen before. So, you know, a year ago I just had, I was just monetizing on three platforms, YouTube, Facebook, and a little bit on TikTok. Today I have those three, but I've also have two shows on Snapchat that bring in different revenues. I have Instagram Reels, which offers me a bonus. And then starting in January, I'm gonna have a YouTube Shorts channel, which will be monetized. So now all of a sudden I have six or seven streams of income as a creator. Do you think the era of the influencer, so opening Instagram and being sold a toothbrush, is that coming to an end? I wouldn't say that era is coming to an end, but its significance is decreasing rapidly. Instead, what's happening is what's called UGC, user-generated content. So, and I think we kind of started to see this before pandemic, it's like micro-influencers. Companies want to go for people with 10K followers instead of 1 million followers because they're going to have a better connection with their audience. So now what we're seeing is companies, to be honest, companies are able to create their own content now more than ever. And what they're doing is they're using UGC creators to make videos about their products. So your toothbrush example you kept going to, in, you know, maybe three years ago they would say, all right, we have $100,000, we're gonna give this to, to 10 influencers for $10,000 each to promote our toothbrush. Now what they're saying is they might still do that with some of their budget, but the rest of their budget, they're finding UGC creators. These are people with about 1,000 to 10,000 followers. And they're saying, hey, make some videos for us about the toothbrush. Post it on your channel, but also give us the content and we are going to boost it as an ad on Instagram and on TikTok. And I'm seeing the brands that I work with do that more and more. They're saying, hey, Upton, make a video, we'll give you this much money, but we also want access to it to boost it as our ad. Because that ad is gonna convert more sales than an ad agency making an ad that's super polished with nice drone imagery and all of that. That was content creator Upton Sadi speaking to me at Web Summit. Now, if that type of influencing is not up your street, maybe you'll like ethical influencing, which my next guest believes could be the next iteration of this industry. Christian Vanisette is the founder of Regroup and he told me how it works. So the concept behind is that we all know the climate emergency is real. I mean, we're on track to uh, reach uh, like big degrees of increase of the earth temperature. And there's little time left to solve this issue. Three years to start declining the carbon emission. And so the goal of Regroup is to get people together, especially the generation that has the most to lose with climate change, the Generation Z, and to make them act together on the biggest campaign to stop climate change. And so it's an app on your mobile phone. And the first campaign you have at the moment is to stop the longest oil pipeline in the world, which alone would make the carbon emission of a country like Ireland. And so if you stop that, it's like you stop the number of emissions of a country like Ireland. It's super important. There's around 420 carbon bombs like that, we call them. And if they happen, we're at 3.5 degrees. And it's easy to feel hopeless around these big issues. But when you get together, you can actually stop those projects and create the change. And so that's what we try to do with Regroup. So if I have the app on my phone and I open it, what do I see and how do I help? So on this campaign, for example, for this big pipeline, there's activists and campaigners fighting every day to stop it. 
So we work with them to identify what are the pressure points you need to put on this company building the pipeline so they stop it. One of the pressure points, for example, is making sure they don't get banks to finance them. If they don't get banks, they can't make the pipeline happen. It's around 10 billion euros. And so the campaigners, when you open the app, there's a video of the campaigner saying, you, hey, today, the action of the day is to write to this bank in the UK, for example, or in Paris or in New York, to ask them, can you please, guy, not finance this pipeline because it's entering the future. And also, I'm a client of your bank, so don't use my money to fund these projects like that. And for banks, for example, if there's 5,000 of their customers sending them an email like that, it becomes a reputational risk. So then they look at it and say, oh my God, maybe we shouldn't do that because we create backlash for our consumers. And so we use these techniques. You click on the button, a pre-written email is sent, and then the banks receive and the campaigners, do they work? But you gave them so much power because when they call the bank to ask them for change, there's like hundreds of people who would have sent a mail showing there's a real movement behind. And this is just one action. The second action, for example, the next day you come back and we tell you, okay, this oil company has gas station all over the country. The action you're going to do today is to go on Google Maps and leave a comment on the gas station by saying, don't go there because they do the biggest oil pipeline in the world. So it's to attack another pressure point, their brand reputation. And so you click on the button of the app of the video of the activist telling you, go on the Google Maps, directly go on Google Maps, you left your comment, and then you have a video of the campaigner who tells you, thank you, this made a big difference, and this technique worked in the past, so we hope it's going to work again. How can you or will you monetize this app? So the goal is to really reach millions of users in a few uh, amount of time because there's no time left for the solving the climate crisis. And so the first is growth, growth, growth of user base by having the activist and the campaigner and all these influencers, you say, like asking their community to take action on the platform. And then once we reach millions of users, the key is to find a monetization model where the more you have users, the more they have impact, the more you make money. And so there's some key, really interesting things, for example, uh, changing to a better bank uh, that doesn't invest in fossil fuels, changing to an electricity company that do clean energy. We will encourage the user to take this path and for this, you have affiliation models. So this company pays you for the people you bring, but also like maybe advertisement within the videos from responsible companies, also microtransactions, like you can support the activist of the campaign. And if you have millions of users that take those actions, it can be a really pretty cool business model that makes it that we can sustain the growth to really reach the 700 millions of Gen Z who care about climate. That was Christian Vanasset, the founder of Regroup, speaking to me at Web Summit in Lisbon earlier this week. And that's it for this week's Tech Talk. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira on Monday's News Talk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a good weekend.